My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am sitting here talking with Dr. Erica Novak, and we are going to talk about what I see as perhaps one of the most relevant snake topics uh, that we have today, and that is the concept of translocation. And, you know, I talk about it as uh, relevant because it's a practice that's happening all the time everywhere. And there are certain issues with translocation that we should all be aware of. You know, the average person who maybe cares a great deal about snakes, um, you know, thinks that they're doing a very good thing, moving a snake out of potential harm. But there's some science behind that that will tell us, you know, how good of a thing is it? Is it a bad thing? Are there nuances to it? Certain things that you should or shouldn't be thinking about if you're going to translocate snakes and how you translocate them. And Erica is uh, probably definitely one of, if not the world's foremost expert on the science behind the translocation of snakes. So this is going to be a really fun conversation. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Erica. It's good to have you. Thank you, Chris. I like to I like to start off, first of all, having my guests introduce themselves. And, and we don't need to go into depth about your background and uh, because I'm going to do that. I'm going to dive in uh, to that. But, you know, basically, you know, where are you today? Where are you sitting today? And, and who do you work for? And, and, you know, what's your job relative to snakes? So at this current time, I'm a research professor at Northern Arizona University. And so about half of my work is doing research in the field. Um, about a quarter of my work is teaching classes and probably Another three quarters, I'll say, because it's more than one, is involved with, <laughs> involved with mentoring students. Ah, that's great. And so Northern Arizona University, so that's in Flagstaff, Arizona. Is, is, uh, are you based at the university itself then? Yes, I am. Yep. Ah. So historically, I was part of the Colorado Plateau Research Station. And um, now I'm currently with the Center for Adaptive Western Landscapes. Ah, Excellent. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, curious where you grew up, but also more so, um, this interest that you have in snakes and other reptiles, is this something that, you know, you were born with? It's <laughs> kind of innate? Uh, or is this something that kind of developed over time as your career progressed? You know, that's a really good question. There's a profile of me in the book called American Snakes, and that kind of gives the backstory. But I did grow up on a farm in upstate New York, um, kind of halfway between, say, the Adirondacks and 
the, um, the eastern part of the state. And um, I grew up chasing snakes and chasing frogs and had my first encounter with the snake when I was about two and a half years old. We watched it eat a frog. Um, oh, wow. So I've always been interested in snakes and amphibians, but probably when I was around 11 or 12, I had a kind of an unusual experience where I was watching some snakes and it was unfortunate being a kid and not thinking about things carefully. I was afraid and I ended up killing these two snakes who were probably involved in courtship and um, just, you know, didn't think a whole lot about that at the time, but then pretty soon after that saw my dad and I explained, oh, I killed these snakes, you know, I was scared. And he said, well, what the hell did you do that for? And it was the first time that anybody had spoken to me like that regarding animals and really questioned what I was doing and, you know, basically made me look at my actions. So really your career has been just kind of like a penance, like you're, you're <laughs> making up for past wrongs. <laughs> That's really the, really the long backstory, yes. <laughs> so do you, um, do you remember what species they were? They were either a ribbon snake or a garter snake. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, so you're, you're growing up in upstate New York and you have this, this experience with snakes where you kill them and which is fascinating to me. Cause I, I feel like, uh, you know, that's, if, if you think about people and how they interact with snakes, like I, I always say this when I give presentations, like, you know, if, if I give someone a baseball, what do they do? They throw it. If I give them a shovel, what do they do? They dig a hole. But if you give them a snake, what do they do? They kill it. And, you know, I think there's both, uh, as you well know, there's genetic components to that and behavioral components uh, to that. But that's how a majority of humans on this planet uh, interact with snakes. So, so interesting that you experienced that personally at such a young age. So, your dad, your dad is questions uh, firmly, it sounds like why you did this and you're, you know, uh, it sounds like an early teenager, uh, you're a little bit younger. And then after that event, how did it progress as you went through high school? Did that change how you thought about snakes? It did. It, first of all, it gave me more of an appreciation for thinking about all life and thinking about my role and in interacting with other animals. Um, and then I just became, rather than fearful, I became more interested. Okay, I've done this thing, but why did I do it? Um, how do I interact with these animals? And then how can I be more interested going forward? So heading off to Cornell University for my undergraduate degree, I became very interested in herpetology. Dr. Harvey Poe was my herpetology professor and to, remains a mentor to me. And just um, had an amazing experience in college, got very interested in documenting the natural world in general and came back to the farm and started recording my observations on the farm. And um, just, I guess, from that point forward, just became more fascinated by recording snake observations and their behavior and just understanding more about them. Oh, that's great. So first of all, you went to Cornell, which, you know, is arguably one of the historical and even current some degree meccas for herpetology uh, in the world. A uh, great school. I've spent some time there with some of those folks. And, uh, and so you're going through your undergrad and, and did you go in pretty much right away, say majoring in biology or zoology, or is it something that uh, you were starting somewhere else and came to? I actually started off as a pre-veterinary student 
And I like to say that I was a uh, natural resources major with a minor in pre-veterinary science. And so I got through most of the, the requirements for the degree and realized that working with captive animals uh, in a veterinary situation was not what I was interested in. It was more interested, being interested in the wild landscapes and wild animals. So then I shifted over and graduated with a degree in natural resources management and really took it from there. And pretty soon after that, was hired by the, I'm trying to remember which agency it was at that time. I think it was actually the National Park Service. And I was hired into the Colorado Plateau Research Station as a a technician. Right out of your undergraduate. A couple, about a year afterwards, yeah. Oh, okay, great. And what were you doing uh, in that first position? So I was actually really fortunate to be conducting uh, inventory and monitoring programs in national parks. Parks um, Started off at Montezuma Castle National Monument in the Verde Valley of Arizona. And then um, within a few years, we were given the opportunity to conduct inventory and monitoring across other landscapes. And I had, I had done a little bit of that as an undergraduate. I worked in various herpetological inventory projects in Florida, Oregon. Um, but then being an employee, a technician at the, the research station gave me a real opportunity to, to specialize on that and continue con- to conduct the research. You know, so you're obviously still in the the same location, so you must have loved <laughs> yeah. it. And it's a it's a great region, obviously, from a snake and a reptile in general perspective. But um, how did you go? You so you went into the workforce, and then from there, how did you end up uh, going to to graduate school? And where did you go to graduate school? So it was a direct outcome of my work as a biological te- biological technician with the Colorado Plateau Research Station. I was working in. Montezuma Castle National Monument, and discovered that they were relocating rattlesnakes out of the park, and they were taking them and dumping them all in this one area on Forest Service land, which was an interesting management conundrum in itself. Um, And as I started to get into the literature, I realized at that time there was very little research that had been done on that question. So what happens to rattlesnakes when they're moved out of these landscapes? Howard Ryder at the time was one of the few folks who were working on translocation of rattlesnakes in the U.S. There had been some other some other um, research that was more kind of an overview of what was known, and Dodd and Siegel and some others. But at that time, there had been very little research on rattlesnakes in particular. And so I followed that up with thinking, well, I'm interested in doing a master's and I'm interested in staying where I am. And as a federal employee, I can work while I'm con- conducting my master's research. And so Northern Arizona University um, was the place where I did my master's work, actually, as well as my dissertation work. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, your graduate work in depth, so we don't have to go into detail. But both your master's and your PhD were focused in the same general arenas, right? The concept of translocation and snakes. Is that right? That's generally correct. The, the master's was really focused on translocation of rattlesnakes. And the PhD was a follow-up to that based on the results of the master's, kind of looking at venomous species management in general. Gotcha. Okay, great. Well, you've, you've mentioned, well, let's, let's finish that. Let's finish kind of your timeline because, um, you know, you finished your PhD and then you've obviously, you're still at the same institution and you've been working. So how did you transition from finishing your doctorate 
and then being, uh, you know, research faculty at the university? Is that something that just happened right away or did you, you know, leave the area and come back? How, how did that all come together? Well, it was, it was pretty straightforward. Um, at the time, I was a USGS um, graduate student, but it turns out that a lot of the positions that were available to U.S. Geological Survey um, post postgraduates at that time were in places that didn't have super high herpetological diversity. And I made a decision that I would rather stay in the region and continue to work at Northern Arizona University. Um, and as part of that, back in about 1999, I became involved with narrow-headed garter snake research and continued actually a kind of a side project working with recovery of these species, which ended up becoming federally listed. And so um, around the time that I finished my dissertation, I was getting heavily involved with thinking about ways to try to recover narrow-headed garter snakes and trying to understand more of the reasons for their decline hmm. in Arizona as well as in New Mexico. Okay, great. So now multiple times as you kind of go back through you know, the history of your career, you've mentioned uh, the Colorado Plateau Research Station. And, and for our audience, uh, you know, I'll just say that uh, a lot of federal agencies, whether that be uh, Department of Interior or Department of Agriculture, uh, you know, they have, well, a large part, the largest part of what they typically do is um, management or on the ground actions to manage resources, whether those be snakes or, you know, pine trees. Uh, but, uh, but most of them have research units that are, are kind of formed and housed in different ways that, that provide the science information, uh, that, uh, you know, is then used to inform the management. And so maybe just, just take a second and kind of give an overview of the Colorado Plateau Research Station and what, you know, the goal of that station is. Sure. So it's, it's definitely evolved over the years. It was initially set up to provide science to the national parks. So it was a cooperative ecosystem study unit. It was part of that system. Um, and it was initially, again, housed within the Park Service, was transferred to the U.S. Geological Survey, briefly was part of the National Biological Survey, which was resuscitated for a short time, went back to the USGS. Um, but the mission has been the same. It's to use research to help managers in the federal government address science questions. So basically provide the research expertise um, it's made up of a variety of folks who are both um, traditionally it was made up of folks who were housed at the universities. So researchers like myself, um, PhDs, and then a lot of that now has shifted away from having um, academic affiliations. The academic affiliations are so maybe a subsidiary of the federal affiliations. So those folks now are housed at the federal agencies. But the research station um, continues to focus on the Colorado Plateau. There are two different versions of us now. One group is housed within the USGS, and one group is housed at Northern Arizona University. Um, and we do provide science to address questions that managers of federal lands have, tribal lands, nonprofits. Um, 
basically providing that data to help them address these research questions. But also increasingly, we're getting into modeling and kind of just doing pure science as well. Great. And what I'm about to say, just so the audience knows, these are completely my words, not Erica's. Um, So the first thing I'll say is that I think this is an incredible model for our federal agencies to function uh, in a science using man science-based management. You've got units that are working on the science and you've got units that are working on the management. I will say not having worked in a type position you are, I, I do think that uh, I've often seen uh, maybe that model not functioning at the level of uh, that it could. And I'm not blaming either side of that, but I think it is a communication piece either from one side to the other, because it's critical if you're going to use that approach to have the science produced that needs to be produced. And then that science used on the ground. And again, I'm not blaming either side of that equation. You know, I've seen instances where you have researchers in these units of what are type that are have their own research programs and they end up going in a variety of directions that maybe are not exactly what the management agency needs and then vice versa uh, you know I've often seen situations where the management on the ground isn't using the science that's produced so without you know I'm saying that not you but I, I'm curious just in a real general sense um, I mean do you think that's a, a very effective, uh, this has been a very effective model for the management of our federal lands. And, and are there any ways that it could be improved? Well, I think you could do a whole podcast on this topic. A long and complicated history here, even just within the Colorado Plateau Research Station. So just for a little bit of background, I stopped keeping track when we had changed names and agencies about 19 times over the course of my tenure with the group. So obviously without consistent oversight, that's a challenge just for the agencies themselves. You know, it's hard to figure out what your priorities are when you keep changing between agencies and changing within regions and changing where your client base is. So that's challenging. I think the idea is really awesome. And I will say that having been within the system for some time and now still working as a university researcher within the same kind of paradigm. It is really helpful. Um, We're continuing to provide science to help answer some of these questions, and and folks are still using it. Um, In my case, it's really snake-focused at this point, so really focused on the issues that park service units have with snake management. Um, But it's the same thing with with birds and with vegetation modeling and with other with other aspects of biology. So I think that there's still a place for it. Um, <laughs> again, without Great. And spending hours on it, it's hard to know how to improve it. But Yeah. But, and I want the audience to know, I wasn't trying to be too negative at all. I think it's an incredible model and I think it functions really well most of the time. I just mm-hmm. wanted to make that statement that, you know, sometimes I think there'd be better communication, but overall I'm a huge proponent and supporter of that type of model for management of our federal lands. So, okay, well, let's, uh, let's transition. And I want to get to the topic at hand and I want to talk about snake translocations. And I think to set it up, I would just like to say that, you know, throughout my life, I've seen changes in this, but, but there's, we're moving more and more towards a world where people 
first of all, human populations are expanding more and more into, you know, natural or, or wild areas. And there's seems to be a growing interest uh, to figure out how to live alongside wildlife. So translocations of snakes are something that are becoming more and more common. Because again, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's thought of as, as a very good thing for the snake. So I guess, first of all, without getting into the details of translocation, like, I mean, can you talk about it at that high level? Like we're trying to live alongside wildlife and, and you know, translocation and the scale of it and the importance of it. Sure. It's, it's something that's happening worldwide, not just with snakes, but with all species. You know, you can look at elephants, lions, you know, basically any animal that's considered to be a nuisance, an animal that's seen as a problem either to humans, their livestock or their pets is considered a nuisance. And translocation has been a, it's been a way to deal with it. If, it's widely, as you mentioned in your intro, it's considered to be something that's beneficial. So it's another way of saving the animals. But in the face of diminishing habitat and a few other factors, which I'm sure we'll cover, it's it's not always successful. And so even though it's widely viewed as something that's a positive, the science is showing us that sometimes it can, can be a negative if not thought about carefully. Great. Well, let me... Let me tell you, first of all, how I do it, because I, I do a fair amount of it now in the, in the communities that I work in, and then I want you to tell me everything that's wrong with it. I mean, I'm aware of a number of the studies, but, you know, so I live in a very rural uh, region in the Southern Appalachian Mountains where, you know, you have a lot of public land and, you know, you know kind of uh, smaller amounts of private land kind of uh, worked within that. And there's a lot of uh, you know, snake human interaction. It's probably actually very similar to say, you know, areas outside of like Tucson out in the mountains where you have small mountain communities and homes out in a, you know, very naturalized landscape. It's very much like that. And so part of what we do in this very local area is that, especially we have two venomous snakes, timber rattlesnakes and, and copperheads. And, uh, Copperheads are very common and very, uh, you know, they're encountered very frequently. So we typically don't go move every copperhead, but we will go and translocate rattlesnakes. And what I've come to over the years is that I will go and I talk to the person and I say, I, it might be a staff member, but we will go and, and we will move the snake. But I tell them that you know, we will move them off your property, uh, but we're not going to move them, you know, miles and miles away that we'll come and we will move the rattlesnake, uh, approximately, uh, you know, typically it would be maybe up to three, 400 yards. We'd move it to a wooded area and, and, and release the snake. And I tell them that there is a good chance there is a chance, uh, that, that the snake uh, will be back. Um, the other thing that I will say about our translocations, and, and we can talk about this maybe later, is that uh, you know, a huge theme of this podcast is that snakes are animals too. They have an ecology. They're not just these like random things everywhere on the landscape put there to hurt people. And a number of the snake translocation scenarios we're encountered with, we encounter 
have to do with gravid female rattlesnakes that have set up shop in people's landscaping. And I'll, I'll tell one story about that and, and then I will stop dominating the airwaves. But um, we, I had a call into a very remote part of this region and I went out and lots of times you get these calls and it's not what you expect. And I get this call and this woman meet this woman in her driveway and we walk around the back of her house and all of a sudden there's a timber rattlesnake, like a black face timber rattlesnake and it goes under her house. And I was like, Whoa, oh, maybe this is real. And then she walks me into her house and walks me up to uh, the front door, which is glass. And we look out and she's got a huge rock for like a stoop. And, and on top of that rock are a male and female timber rattlesnake mating. There's another male about three feet away coming up to the rock and I can see a couple copperheads. Anyways, we go around wow. by the time we're done, I find eight copperheads in total. So we had, we saw four rattlesnakes, we captured three and eight copperheads. Um, and, uh, so just kind of an amazing story, but, uh, we solved that problem by simply changing the rock that she used for her step. Um, but anyway, so there's the issue with the gravid females that I talk about, and we do something a little bit different there. Maybe we can touch on that later. I'd be curious to hear your take. But in general, uh, first of all, grade, grade our translocation program. Do you think we're killing all the snakes? Do you think it's not worth the time and money because it's not doing anything? Just give me a little bit of a grade, if you would. I would give you an A. Really? Yeah. And, w and why? What aspects of what we're doing would you would you base that grade on? Well, you started off by talking about the education that you do with the landowners and the homeowners. That's perfect. That's where I would start with any program that I did, whether it was in the national parks or with a private landowner, um, and explaining to them why you're doing it and, and the translocation method that you use and why you're not taking it miles away. I mean, that's really critical to the animal survival. I think a big part of translocation is trying to encourage empathy for the animals. And so it sounds like you're doing well with that. Um, the physical practice of translocation within what should be a home range is perfect. That's what produces the most survival. I just wanted to take a break and tell everyone about Vision Products. They make dependable and durable products for reptiles and rodents, from cages, racks and tubs, to bowls and hides. We've been using their cages at our headquarters to house our educational reptiles for over a decade. They're easy to clean, easy to use, and they are still going strong. Please visit their website at www.visionproducts.us and follow them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Pinterest. Well, tell us just in a general sense, we're going to talk about your research more specifically, but in a general sense, if you take a snake out of its home range and you move it miles and release it, what, what does science tell us is happening to that snake? So based, based on my review of the literature, and this is from a few years ago, I need to update it. Um, the literature that's been published, all literature may not be published if the results are negative. But the literature that's been published, 
53% of the animals, rattlesnakes that are translocated outside of their home ranges die. That's the mean. So there are studies that have had 100% mortality of translocated snakes, and there are studies where they have done better. But these are just the ones that have been published or the ones that I'm aware of. So I'm guessing that the mortality rates are a lot higher because probably a lot of the really negative results are probably not getting published. There's some publishing bias that happens. So in general, if you move a snake out of its home range, it has a less than 50% chance of survival. And so what does it do? Like, why, how does it die? Like, what's its behavior? What's its ecology in this new landscape that results in death? And so here I'm drawing on a number of others' studies, not just my own, including those of Howard Reiner and other folks. But really common, the snake will try to return home. And if it's in a situation, especially in an urban area like Phoenix or Tucson or some of the urban areas of the southeast, it has to cross roads to return home. And so there's super high mortality from being hit by cars. Some of the snakes that we um, translocated experimentally moved into people's yards and they were killed by people who didn't want them there. So unintentional mortality of another, by another human is a big problem. The animals do things like they move during the wrong time of day. They often move during the winter. So they expose themselves to predation from, you know, from native predators, non-human predators. But they also expose themselves to freezing overnight if they're in a situation where the, road, the nighttime temperatures decrease below freezing. Um, there's debate about whether they become stressed or not. Some studies show indications that they are stressed. There's other research by Emily Taylor, Matt Holding, and others that shows that probably there's not so much stress going on. But assuming that there may be stress, some of those animals may be more susceptible to picking up diseases. So we had an animal that was translocated that died of a respiratory infection after he returned to the park where he was translocated from. Um, so there's just a number of factors that predispose them to higher mortality rates. Mm-hmm. And then behaviorally, Howard Reinertz had a really neat study where he showed that male timber rattlesnakes that were translocated ended up not going into perfectly suitable hibernation dens. And they also had really odd behaviors, probably some hormonal profile changes. And um, other animals treated them as if they were females and tried attempted courtship with them. So the stress, assuming that it may occur in some individuals, may produce both immunological and behavioral changes as well. Hmm, interesting. We did, uh, Emily, Dr. Taylor was a, a, on this podcast, and, and we I didn't let her talk too much about translocation because I knew I wanted to talk to you about it, but she did mention the research you guys work on. So, um, okay, well, so that's how they die. Uh, it's really a variety of ways. Um, and, you know, so again, at that point, you know, it's, it's really, it's not worth it from the snake's perspective. It's not worth it from a, you know, cost effective, you might as well not go move them and just let them die right there. Um, but what about, you know, what I mentioned to these landowners where I say, I'm going to put them a few hundred yards away and, we will, you know, there's a chance they'll come back. Do you know, is there any information on that that you're aware of? How often does that happen? Do they, uh, you know, end up, you know, at that point, do, do you see with say landowners that, you know, they only have a certain tolerance and that they, if it comes back, they will end up killing it. I'm just kind of that side of it. Do they, if you put them close enough within their home range, 
do they typically go right back there or is it something where they will, you know, continue on and might not be there for another couple of years or do we know? <laughs> so there are, there are a number of answers to that question. Um, movement within the home range typically results in higher survival. So again, of the studies that I reviewed, the mortality rate for animals translocated within their home ranges was about 34%, which is still a little bit higher than natural mortality for adult rattlesnakes, tends to be about 10 to 30% for an individual in a given year. So there is still some risk, you know, and it probably depends on translocation distance and proximity to other humans and other structures, um, you know, potential proximity to roads. Um, but in general, there's a higher survival rate. So then the question is, they have the ability to be within their home range. Will they come back to the place that they were captured from or captured at? And that's a study that needs to be done in more, with more experimental power. I have a graduate student who's hoping to work on that now. She's um, having, she's working, she's trying to look at different aspects of that for her master's research. So hopefully in another year, if we're talking again, I can give you more details on that. But that's an important question. Based on some preliminary information that I have from within the national parks, again, most of my research has been within the national parks. I don't do very much research with landowners. But within the national parks, the animals that um, we move a short distance off the trails tend not to come back to the place that they were moved from. John Seeley did some work with this on timber rattlesnakes um, and showed that in his experience, the timber rattlesnakes were really freaked out. They didn't want to come back to the place where people had captured them and bothered them. And that's kind of the basis of the graduate student that I, who was working with me on this basically looking to see if we scare them enough, if we can scare them away from showing, showing themselves to humans again. Um, so it's like a hazing program as opposed to translocation. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so again, it's, there's anecdotal evidence for some individuals that may be very successful. Um, even within the parks, we've had some evidence for that. Um, but there's also evidence for some individuals that, that they are just, they're very easygoing and they kind of don't care. So something really important to keep in mind is that rattlesnakes are individuals. And um, you know you've covered this, but different animals have different responses to this, the stress or non-stress of being translocated. Some of the individuals will become very scared and really won't want anything to do with humans. Other animals, especially maybe those who are more habituated, being picked up and moved kind of has no bearing on their life. They just, that doesn't really ma matter to them. So do you know, it's not, a oh, go ahead. Way. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's just not a simple answer, I guess. And unfortunately we can't say for sure at this point. So you mentioned snakes are individuals. You did talk at one point about male snakes. So are there any patterns that you can kind of categorize? Meaning like male snakes would have higher mortalities in translocation than females, or I'm assuming like a postpartum female, for example, would have much higher mortality. But mm -hmm. are there any patterns like that, that anybody has studied and, and we know anything about? Uh, so that's an area of research that needs to be synthesized. Um, I, that's not something that I had the, the power to look at in my research. Um, I was working primarily with, with males. Um, I think the majority of the studies have been with males. So on one hand, the good news for males is that they typically have larger home ranges. They move more yeah. anyway. 
So they may be predisposed to moving more and maybe being more successful. But again, it depends on the translocation site. So if you have an animal who's moving more and it's moving more in an urbanized landscape, it's more likely to encounter peril. Um, the Actually, we, we did move a couple of females and those females um, tended to stay in place. They didn't move as much, but something that needs to be analyzed in a little more detail. So would you say that encountering peril, as you talk about crossing a road, going into a backyard, um, is a higher proportion uh, you know, contributor to the mortality rates you, you mentioned, or or just this concept of they're moving a lot more, and you mentioned you know potential for stress and uh, not finding good hibernacula, those types of things. Do you think that being in peril is a greater factor, or are they both kind of equal? Well, based on the research that I did in, in the national parks, where peril was pretty minimized, you know, there was not a lot of um, there were not a lot of humans in the parks that would be predisposed toward being predators of the snakes. Um, in that situation, mortality was still very high, even for snakes that returned to the park, even for snakes that came back to their home ranges, several of those died. So I think in a natural landscape, it's probably equal factor. I think in urbanized landscapes, the potential for peril being and suffering at the hands of humans is much higher. Huh. Okay. So, I remember a long time ago, uh, I went to a conference in Canada. I don't remember if you were there in Lethbridge and yes. you know where I'm going with this either way, whether you were there or not. But, um, and we went out on a field trip and we, you know, basically there's this coolie in the vicinity of, you know, these urbanized areas and there is a, uh, a I think it's kind of a grassroots type effort that where, uh, prairie rattlesnakes in this case that are found in peril in these human landscapes get moved into this kind of wild area and vicinity. But the thing that I thought was interesting is that what they would do is they would release these, they would translocate these snakes into pens essentially with man-made hibernacula. I believe they would even feed them. Uh, for a time period, they're still in a natural setting. They're just caged in this natural setting. And the idea, I mean, this is called a soft release. We use this on, sure. uh, you know, restoring endangered species, reintroducing species. Uh, and there's trade-offs there. When you soft release something, you're putting it into a somewhat unnatural environment. You're forcing it to stay in one place. Potentially you're feeding it. Uh, so there's potential negatives there. Um, are you familiar with this landscape or other landscapes? And then specifically, I'm getting at the value of soft release and translocations. Do you think it's cost prohibitive? I know, but is it an effective way to deal with some of these issues? That's a tricky question. Um, I think as a management strategy for recovery of threatened and endangered species, I think it's great. I think the data on soft releases in terms of encouraging survival of captive bred or other conservation species of concern, is there's clear data that soft releases are great and they really do help the survival of the animals versus a hard release where you just take an animal out and just dump it off. It tends not to work so well. So in that situation, I, th I think it's very valuable. 
I'm really worried about it as a mitigation translocation strategy for nuisance animals. So like these rattlesnakes in Canada or other places where it might be considered. There's not much data on using it in other situations. Um, those guys were pioneers. The problem now is the spread of snake fungal disease and other pathogens. Ronavirus is carried by snakes. Here in the Southwest, we've, and in fact in Arizona, we've documented snake fungal disease in wild populations where we have both rattlesnakes and threatened and endangered species, snakes. And I'm really worried that with a strategy like that, that you could be unintentionally introducing and spreading diseases. And right. so any place where you have where you have a lot of contact of snakes coming in from all these different areas, um, it does kind of make me nervous. So it's, Interesting. It's, and that, that makes sense. We've done entire episodes on snake fungal disease. And uh, so... Yeah, so I guess that makes sense. If you have a situation where you have a, a very imperiled species like prairie rattlesnakes within Canada, sure. um, it might be ineffective, uh, but there's a potentially a very big cost. And so it might not be something that's um, wise to use everywhere. Um, last piece, and then I want to talk about your research specifically. So I just want to get back to that gestating female example. And I don't know if you've encountered this, but, you know, so you have to take into account that like with most rattlesnakes, but timber rattlesnakes are certainly one of the most extreme examples of this, uh, especially in extreme environments like high elevation here or high latitude, uh, that these gravid females or females in general are some of the most critical animals for the population ecology of, of, you know, that given population they're part of. So these are hugely valuable animals. And so we go out and we find this animal using somebody's house who just will not have it there. Um, and I, I guess I've never tested this, but I just assume if I leave that snake 200 yards away, it's almost automatic that it would come back to that gestation rock if that's where it wanted to be. And so what we have done in the past, and, and there are other issues with this, probably similar to what you're talking about, disease-related issues, but we would actually bring the female, because she's so gravid, we'd bring her into captivity. We would give her a good thermal gradient where she could you know, uh, maintain the temperature she, she would like day and night. And then when she gives birth, we put everybody back out. Um, and I'm just curious if you've encountered this concept, how to deal with gravid rattlesnakes um, and, and what other people do. And, and do you think that's, we shouldn't be doing that? I mean, just what are your thoughts on that whole thing? So I have to say, I don't have so much experience with pregnant females. The females in my study didn't become pregnant or gravid during my research. Um, but I think your strategy is good for animals that, like you said, are high value. You know, those if that pregnant female is moved, even if there's a slightly higher chance for her mortality, then you're basically losing her plus all of her babies. So I think in that situation, your strategy is excellent. I think as long as you can maintain good biosecurity of, you know, your different enclosures and make sure that doing everything you can to protect the health of the animals. Sounds like a really good strategy. Um, you know, for, for those of us who don't have access or folks who don't have access to keeping pregnant females until they give birth, um, maybe focusing uh, really more on education with the landowners and saying, you know, here's the situation. We're really worried about this female. If we release her, you know, she may 
not survive? Is there any way? Can we just move her in this habitat? Can we change something, make it better for her somewhere else nearby? Um, it's a tricky situation and I, I don't have a good answer. It's another area where probably more research is needed. Okay. Well, let's talk specifically about your graduate research and, and what you've done subsequent uh, in this arena. So first of all, tell us, uh, you know, a little bit about, I guess it started with your master's research. So where, where is this research primarily occurring and what species are you working on and kind of what's the, the translocation scenario that you're studying? Sure. So for my master's, I worked at Montezuma Castle National Monument, which is in north central Arizona. It's a pretty small park, maybe a million, two million visitors a year. Um, it has <laughs> features which predispose rattlesnakes to cross trails. So there are these amazing Sanawa cliff dwellings, visitor center and trails built in front of it. And so there are constant rattlesnake crossings in the spring and the fall. Snakes are dispersing away from their hibernation sites in the cliffs, crossing the trails to get to their summer foraging or hunting grounds. Um, so I worked there, translocated the rattlesnakes from that site uh, two kilometers into the, the adjacent forest service land and then followed individuals um, and then repeated the repeated research in that park for my dissertation. And that aspect was okay. As I mentioned earlier, translocation was not very successful. A lot of the animals died. Many of them returned to the park. So then I thought about, okay, how do we keep them in place? And for the dissertation work, um, there was a theory going around at the time, and still is, if you put out food and water for birds, you will attract rattlesnakes to your house, or you could attract rattlesnakes to your house. And so I experimentally replicated that at Montezuma Castle and Tonto National Monument, which is in central Arizona, and basically put out these bird feeding and watering stations and tracked rattlesnake prey and tracked rattlesnake predators. For both studies, the primary species that I worked with was the western diamondback rattlesnake, Crotalus atrox. Okay, so your master's study, you said you removed them, what did you say, two kilometers? Two kilometers. And they, what were those snakes doing once you released them? Like if we were to be in the air and kind of look at the movement trajectories, were they all just kind of beelining back towards home and and mostly dying along the way or were animals kind of out searching around that landscape, trying to get their bearings? Uh, what, what did they look like, their movements? Yeah, that was the really neat thing that for the animals that we had good data on, which were only a few, it looked like they were using triangulation. So we put them out in the site, translocation site, twice as far as we'd ever seen them travel under normal circumstances. Um, and they would go out in a bearing. They would come back to roughly the same location, pick another bearing, go back. And they would they did this over the course of about six months. They overwintered, and then the next spring, they started on a couple of bearings, and then they pretty much beelined down these washes back to their home ranges. Great. And did many of them survive? It sounds like most and of them did not. Most of them did not survive. So, of the nine animals that were translocated, um, there were six, five that died. Six was unaccounted for. Probably died. The two that survived, so okay. over over half, um, and then the ones that returned. So there were four that returned, and um, two of those died. And then your so your dissertation is then almost looking at 
I mean, was the concept, can we use this management strategy to keep, we translocate the animals. Can we use the strategy of basically attracting prey to keep the snakes there? Is that kind of the concept? No, it was more to test the theory that attract that putting out food and water for snakes in urban areas or ex-urban areas is attracting snakes. So the question oh. was, how do we have, how do we deal with keeping snakes in place and not using translocation? So in other words, translocation didn't work. So given that it doesn't work, what else can we do to modify our habitats so that snakes are less attracted to human habitation? Oh, and so what did you find there? <laughs> and that was really interesting. It was a failure. <laughs> we did not, we were not able to attract most rattlesnakes to these feeding and watering stations. Were was, you indeed increasing prey densities we were, though? Yeah, we we. At one park, we had a suggestion of increasing the prey. The other park, we had a rodent die off just in the years when I was starting my research. <laughs> so we had documented them in, in the years before we did the we put out the stations. Once we put out the stations, there was a major rodent die off. So <laughs> we didn't have the ability to test it at that park. But at the other park, we were definitely attracting, in both parks, we were attracting birds and rabbits. Um, and the Western Diamondback rattlesnakes are capable of eating rabbits, at least at Montezuma Castle. So there was some evidence for prey attraction, although it wasn't super strong. Um, we had two snakes at each park, sorry, one snake at each park that really focused on these feeding and watering stations. And the rest of the snakes, even though we set them out in places where we knew snakes traveled, the snakes pretty much just avoided them or didn't didn't go near them. Okay. Well, I wanted to go... I want to kind of go, well, first of all, or have you been doing any uh, research subsequent to your graduate work relative to translocations, or is that something that, that you were primarily focused on in graduate school? At this point, it's mostly review. So Brian Sullivan and Matt Kiewikowski and I had a paper that came out in 2014 reviewing the effects of mitigation translocation. And so a lot of the work I've done since then has just been kind of keeping up with the reviewing, thinking about it, thinking about next stages. So a lot of the work that I do now is working with the National Park Service, private organizations, focusing on handling training. So teaching people more about the ecology of the animals. And then if a situation arises where a snake needs to be moved a very short distance, showing them how to do that safely. So kind of using that as, okay, translocation long distances doesn't work. How do we better decrease the potential for venomous snake bite? Well, one way to do that is is to encourage people to think about snake behavior and think about how to safely work with them within the habitats. Um, but we've been continuing the monitoring at Montezuma Castle National Monument. So at this point, a really neat part of the work is that we have animals that have been recaptured over 20 years. So we have some animals that, if they're still alive, are 30 years old. For sure, when we stopped recapturing them, they were between 20 and 25. So we're getting some pretty neat long-term mark recapture results from the animals. Wow, that's great. It's amazing how long some of these snakes can live. It really blows people's minds. So, um, Okay, well, before we leave translocation, is there anything else uh, that any like topics relative to translocation that you wanted to touch on that I missed? You know, one thing that I've been thinking about is it's really important to consider why the snakes are occurring where they are. So rather than just assuming that this is a problem that needs to be addressed by moving the snake, 
think about things that are that are in the habitat that are attractive to the animals. And in some cases, no matter what you do, the habitat will continue to be attractive and there's no way to mitigate that. But as a simple example, Tuzigut National Monument, which is a sister monument to Montezuma Castle, had snakes using their um, using the drain pipes within the Sanawa ruins. So the snakes were accessing the ruins using open pipes. And the simple way to address that is just cap the pipes, basically make them impervious to the snakes. And when they did that, they had major reduction in their interactions between rattlesnakes and people around the ruin sites themselves. So just simple things like that, thinking about modifying the landscape to make it less attractive to the snakes. It may not be st- stopping and bird feeding and watering, but there may be other habitat things that can occur. Cultural- that's a gr- Sorry. I was just going to say, that's a great point. As yeah. I mentioned, that rock at this woman's house right. here in the Appalachians. Uh, you know, I talked to her and, and she basically kind of cemented the bottom of that rock and hasn't right. had the problem ever since. So, but I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I cut you off. What were you going to say? Well, just one other thing that I've been thinking about. Rattlesnakes have developed their migratory paths from where they hibernate in places where they have strong hibernation patterns to where they hunt or where they forage. They've, they've you know, cemented these patterns over generations. There's probably cultural transmission of the migration routes. So adult rattlesnakes moving are setting down these lipid trails, fat trails, um, if you will, or scent trails. Baby rattlesnakes are picking up those scent trails and following them. So one thing to keep in mind is that if you're continually seeing snakes, you may be in a situation where snakes over generations have been passing down this information. So there may be ways to modify the habitat to divert them from their routes rather than just trying to remove them totally from the habitat itself. Okay. Interesting. That makes sense. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. That was a great conversation about translocation. I hope a lot of people, you know, took a lot out of it. But in the end, I mean, I think that the the message there is actually relatively simple. And so I'm going to let you summarize that, though, by talking to our audience who either is implementing translocation or thinking about translocation as a tool in the toolbox for dealing with issues. So what would you recommend in a – what – I was going to say in a general sense, but I'll just leave it up to you. However you want to say it. But what would you recommend people do or think about uh, when considering translocating snakes? So as I mentioned, the first thing to think about is why is the snake occurring in the place that it's occurring? And number one, try to mitigate that as much as possible. If the snake needs to be moved, it's potentially a threat to humans or pets then move it a very short distance, um, a few hundred yards. Move it into the closest available natural habitat. Try to move it in a situation where it won't encounter other landowners or roads and put it into cover so that it has protection from predators. Great. And how about the education side of that? You mentioned education a couple of times. Sure. So I think education is critical. Um, whether you're doing the translocation or whether you're um, encouraging other folks to think about this, 
thinking about what the snakes are doing, why they're there, thinking about their ecology, their biology. You know, some timber rattlesnakes can live 50 years. So, and they use the same areas within their habitats year after year after year. So think about the displacement that could be occurring and try to basically mitigate that from the snake's perspective. Also think about yourself as a predator. So snakes see humans as predators and they act defensively toward things that they consider to be predators. And so think about that in terms of your interaction as you're going to do that translocation and try to minimize any sort of stress or potential perceived predation threat that the snake is perceiving from you. Um, And just generally thinking about the snake and, you know, they have babies and the moms take care of the babies and just kind of educating yourself and educating others on the way snakes actually are, rather than maybe focusing on things that you hear on the internet or the crazy stories that you might hear. Yeah. And I would encourage, well, first of all, you'll probably hate this as a scientist and, and, uh, but, and, uh, you know, I don't, as a scientist as well, I don't generally like to anthropomorphize. Um, but I think it'd be useful for some people who just think they're doing this great thing for the snake by picking it up and moving it three miles away. You know, just think about it in terms of yourself and imagine if you've been living in the same house for 50 years and somebody picked you up and dropped you on a remote island in the Philippines with absolutely nothing, um, you know, how you might respond and, and what it might result in, in, you know, your, your survival or your health. So, um, again, I know we don't like to anthropomorphize, but I think this is one that, uh, you know, people are, are kind of anthropomorphizing in a sense when they take the snake and they move it and, Oh, now it's off in green pastures and everything's perfect. So, um, well, let's leave the translocation. And I want to just take a couple minutes and talk about something, uh, that is not even a snake, but I just think it's one of the coolest things on the planet. So I would like to, and I know you've been working on them of late, and that is one of our few, at least significantly venomous lizards. And uh, the Gila monster, uh, I have one of these sitting here in my office, uh, beautiful animals. Uh, and I know that you've been doing some research in recent years on Gila monsters, again, kind of in, along the same theme, not necessarily translocation, or maybe you have, but with translocation, but in these like fragmented or semi-urbanized landscapes. And I was just curious if, uh, first of all, you could just tell people what is a Gila monster, and then just tell us a little bit about that study and what you've been learning. Sure. So Gila monsters are, as you mentioned, to- Venomous lizard. They're in the family Helodermatidae. They're one of two venomous lizards that occur in the Americas. Gila monsters occur in Arizona, tiny bit in California, down into Mexico. Um, they have they're bright pink or bright orange. They're very what we would call aposematically colored. They have warning coloration. The inside of their mouth is purple. Their venom has a little bit of a purple sheen to it, and they often open their mouths and kind of drool a little bit as a display mechanism. They're interesting animals. They're nest predators. So they're primarily consuming eggs and chicks and baby bunnies, baby squirrels. You know, the work that we did is is really, again, it's this work that I did with Matt Kiewitkowski and Brian Sullivan, just comparing Gila monster movements and um, to some degree behaviors in urban versus not urban areas, and just kind of looking at their movements within those areas. Um, as a way, again, to kind of think about maybe keeping them in place. A lot of people are afraid of them and think that they should be moved. 
But Gila monsters, unlike rattlesnakes, are very, very resistant to biting people unless they're touched. So that's really unlikely to have a venomous Gila monster bite unless the animal is picked up. Great. And so what did you learn about these animals' movements in, say, the urban versus wild landscapes? You know, it's interesting. There wasn't as much difference as we would have expected. Um, I think maybe part of the issue is that we didn't have a, a very large sample size for not urban areas. Most of the animals were either in urban or uh, the National Park Service is not exactly an urban area, but it is heavily impacted by human structures. Um, but movements were pretty similar. There, was, there wasn't there was a tendency, a strong tendency one direction or the other for the animals to move more in less developed areas or less in more developed areas. Um, so it was just more of kind of an exploratory study. And really, I think what it showed us is that more research is needed. And one of the things that's happened since that research was done is that the habitat at Tonto National Monument, where my study was involved with, has burned in a really severe fire. And so a really neat follow-up study would be to look at how Gila, monster, how, how Gila monsters are using that landscape now that the habitat has completely changed due to this big fire that occurred. How, just some general questions, how far do Gila monsters move in general? And and how does that change seasonally? Because, you know, I would think through much of their range, they live in, you know, a monsoon-dominated climate where you have really significantly different uh you know, times of the year based on rainfall. So uh, just anything interesting in their movements around that? Sure. <laughs> they're kind of an unusual animal where they, again, they're nest predators. So when nestlings are on the ground, they're very, very active. They have a lot of movements. Um, but then they go into periods where they're underground for months and they can be underground for more than a month at a time. Um, so they have punctuated movements. They're most active in the spring. They go through kind of a dormancy period, at least in our study areas, later part of May through whenever the monsoon starts. Then they're up and moving again extensively during this summer rainy period. So July, August, September, they start to shut down a little bit. Movements are more sporadic. And then they go into a hibernation season. Overall home range is not very large. So maybe, maybe two square kilometers at the most. I mean, they're really not moving that far. Um, and they're, again, kind of like the rattlesnakes, they're coming back to the same places for hibernation year after year. They're not opposed to burrowing under sidewalks or utility boxes or some other nice human-made structure like that. They're happy to incorporate that into their environment, into their Well, habitat. that's what I was going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. is how often does it happen that somebody, say, in Tucson or wherever... Uh, you know, actually has a Gila monster that's gone dormant for a few months and it's somehow in their backyard under something. I mean, is that something that you guys frequently see in these urbanized landscapes? It was something that we that was seen in the work that Brian Sullivan and Matt Gilkowski did. Yeah, it was very common. Um, you know, part of it is where do you put your study site? And if your study site is dominated by the human landscape, then animals will use what's available. But I think the interesting comparison there is that even in the national parks, where they had a lot of natural habitat available to them, they spent a lot of time around trails and buildings. So it is it is very common for them to use these structures. Cool. Well, they're such an amazing animal, and that was just a little uh, bonus on top of our uh, translocation discussion. So thank you for that. Uh, so let's imagine that we are out on a camping trip somewhere 
on that Colorado plateau and we're sitting around the campfire and uh, you are going to tell us one of your best snake stories. Okay. I mean, we could spend a whole conversation, as you know, with many of us talking about snake stories. But um, my most favorite snake story actually comes from a captive animal. There may be two different captive groups. And um, I, for a long time, I, I had a Mojave rattlesnake that was confiscated. It's given to me as um, part of a, a bust. Folks who had collected it illegally and then it was in the game and fish's position, position and they gave it to me. So I had him in captivity. I used him for these training programs. He lived at my house. He had a big cage. We became close. And, you know, this is anthropomorphizing, but it is true. You know, he interacted with me regularly. When he would defecate or express urates in his cage, he would come to the front of the cage. And whenever I would enter the room, he would rattle and rattle and rattle and rattle until I cleaned his cage. And I would let him out, clean the cage, put him back in. He would be fine. Next time he defecated, same thing. Come to the front of the cage, rattle, they clean the cage, he's fine. <laughs> and so wow. to me, the value of keeping animals in captivity and looking at their behaviors and thinking about their behaviors is really, really interesting because it kind of shows their abilities for communication, interspecies communication in this case, and also just their ability to reason. The snake knew that I was the cleaner and he was basically telling me it was time to do my job. And so, you know, we had this really close working relationship. Um, keeping keeping snakes in captivity is part of our um, captive breeding program for the narrow-headed garter snakes. We've seen snakes um, released into a captive enclosure that had a waterfall in it. And the snakes would um, jump into the waterfall allowed it to the current to carry them down into the pool. They would fall into the water. They would climb back up into it, and then they would be carried down again. And they did this repeatedly. Sounds fun. There, yeah, exactly. There's no, <laughs> there's no good explanation for it except for play. These animals were playing in the waterfall. And who would think that a snake would have the capacity either for reasoning like that or for playing? And yeah, in both of these situations, we see these captive animals doing things that we would never think that snakes were capable of doing. So just kind of a plug for folks who are keeping animals in captivity, pay close attention to their behaviors and, you know, don't be shy about publishing or reporting the things that you're seeing. Well, that's, that's a great way to end this. And it's a great message. So uh, I just wanted to thank you again. Uh, again, I think this is a really uh, important topic and one that a lot of people think about in all walks of life all around the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to, to hear what we really know about this topic. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. And how do people, if, if they wanted to follow the research that you're doing or maybe follow your lab, how would they find you? Is there a website or, or some other way that they can find you? There is. We have a, a website on our garter snake lab website. So if you type in narrow-headed garter snake, Northern Arizona University, or just NAU garter snake research program, that'll take you to our website. It talks primarily about the garter snakes, but also some of our work with them species. Great. And we'll put that link in the show notes so the audience can find that easy enough. And I just wanted to thank our audience and tell everybody to remember 
Snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.